0: Hi, everyone. We've decided to re-air one of our top episodes of last year with Nora Sakija, the founder of Majori, one of my personal favorite jewelry brands. But I hope you enjoy it and we'll see you next week with more new episodes.
1: that whole concept of failure is a data point that if you do something about it, you can course correct. And that really helped me personally as a business leader, but also helped relieve some of the stresses or the pressure that I was putting on myself of my expectations to have to get everything right the first time.
0: Hey everyone, I'm Yasmin Nori, and you're listening to the Behind Her Empire podcast. I'm on a mission to showcase successful self-made women who share honest stories and lessons of what it really takes to create the life you want and build your own empire. If you've been listening to the show, you know just like you, I've been on my own personal journey to build my empire. And for the last year, I've worked diligently on starting a new business all around helping women get to the root cause of their period problems and hormonal imbalances. If you're suffering from extreme cramps, fatigue, bloating, stay tuned because a little bit later in the podcast, I'll share a bit more about my new company, Bia. But for now, let's jump into today's episode. I wanna welcome this week's guest, Nora Sakija to our show today. Nora is the co-founder and CEO of Majuri, a direct to consumer fine jewelry brand that introduces handcrafted everyday jewelry without the traditional retail markups. Nora is a third-generation jeweler and grew up in Jordan around her family business and noticed that traditional high-end jewelry brands always targeted men, encouraging them to buy luxe jewelry for women. Nora saw this opportunity and wanted to change the narrative. Before she started her company, she wanted to explore different careers on her own. She studied engineering, got her MBA, and also pursued a career in consulting. However, in 2015, she was determined to start Majuri with one premise, a woman doesn't need a man to buy jewelry for her. She can buy it herself. The company pioneered the drop model in the fine jewelry industry and refreshes its collections weekly. The company has now grown rapidly and was one of the first venture-backed direct-to-consumer jewelry brands. They've raised over $40 million to fuel its growth, and their most recent round, raising $23 million in Series B funding, was done when Nora was pregnant with her twin girls. The brand is worn by celebrities such as Selena Gomez, Gomez, Lizzo, Justin Bieber, Ariana Grande, Oprah, and more. We'll talk to Nora about the struggles she faced very early in the business, why self-care and therapy has been game-changing for her in both her personal and professional life, and what it really takes to build a high-growth brand and sell over 1.8 million pieces of jewelry since inception. Welcome to the show, Nora. Thank you for having
1: me, Yasmin.
0: Well, I'm a big fan of your brand. I'm wearing one of your necklaces today. I swear by it. I sleep with it every day. So I'm excited for our listeners to learn more about you and your amazing brand. I love the mission behind it, how you've really built the business. So I can't wait to jump into it, Nora. So thank you again. Thank you.
1: Excited to share everything about uh, entrepreneurship with you today.
0: Yes, yes. We'll we'll get very real about this topic. So I'm excited. I'd love to start with your childhood. I know you grew up in Jordan. You mentioned you were a bit of a tomboy and you always considered yourself a dreamer. So I'd love to hear more about your upbringing and how you think it's really impacted the woman you are today.
1: Like you said, I grew up in Jordan and I'm a third generation in my family to work in jewelry. So that was a key, key thing for me because literally my father and my cousins and my everyone in the family works in jewelry and it's almost part of my DNA. And I remember, you know, growing up and seeing people actually going to my father in social settings and asking him to look at their diamonds with his loop and really qualify the quality. So I grew up seeing that and that gave me a lot of passion towards jewelry I also grew up with my cousins and their five boys, and that's probably why I was a tomboy. And generally speaking, when growing up, we had a why not mentality. And so my parents were super supportive of my choices. And I decided to study engineering. I decided to take a detour from the family business, and and they were super encouraging. And I studied engineering. I worked in consulting. And I guess one of the key things is when I decided to study engineering, it was because I was an insider to the industry and I learned so much about it from the inside that I fell in love with it. But I also formed an opinion about what I didn't like. And so one of the key things that I wanted to change is really flipping the narrative of jewelry being this exclusive product or exclusive purchase that is typically gifted and traditionally by men to women. And that sort of didn't resonate with me. And so that's why I decided to take a detour and explore something completely different and then come back to the industry with a fresh perspective.
0: I love that a lot because like you mentioned, you really wanted to figure out life and do things on your own. Even though you grew up in jewelry and you had a passion around it, it wasn't necessarily the first thing you jump into. And like you mentioned, you studied industrial engineering in the University of Jordan, and then you actually moved countries, you moved to Canada, you got a job in consulting, and you also were doing a part-time MBA alongside that. So there seems to be a lot at that phase in your life, right? To move to a new country, have a new job, go to a new school. like There's a lot to unpack there. So How was that period of life for you?
1: Yeah, I always reflect back and I'm like, my God, I never took a break. I like went from one thing to another. I've been always motivated since I was younger. I was motivated by success, goals. I used to study super hard in school. It's just who I am as a person. And so I wanted to do my MBA. I wanted to have that combination of engineering and MBA that everyone loves. Yeah, my dad would love you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's like, I don't know why that was the thing. So I decided to move to Canada, just get international experience. And I fell in love with the culture over here, with the country and decided to stay. And so there's a lot that was going on. I used to go to school to, to work during the day and then to school at night. So it was very busy. And towards the end of my MBA, so I got married during that time. And my husband and I decided to start midwifery. And so it was... It, there was an overlap between me working in consulting and at Majori at the same time for a period of time.
0: Yeah. And that's what I want to pack a little bit because you, know, you have this full-time job. You guys got married in between this, you're in school. So how did that idea of Majori come to life? I know you always had an interest in jewelry and you spoke a bit about the mission, but what made you kind of feel like this is something that I want to go all into and pursue?
1: Yeah, I think so. One of the key things is from my childhood or, or my experience, I defined what I didn't necessarily love. And that was just as important as what I loved about the industry. And so when I started to work and make some disposable income and really started to look at where do I buy jewelry for myself, asking my friends. And it wasn't an easy answer and that was sort of the key point for us is we've seen a lot of brands that are coming up in all of the verticals but fine jewelry hasn't seen a lot of innovation or a lot of changes and it was you know it was at that point that i felt it's the time to create a brand for starting with women buying jewelry for themselves we used to joke about buy yourself the damn diamond and it's actually now now a phrase that we use in the company And that was it. Essentially, the premise of it is super simplistic, which is what I love about it. But obviously, the underlying infrastructure to create a brand for self-purchase in an industry that's primarily gifted, we had to rethink everything from product design, photography, brand values, even supply chain and the frequency of introduction. Everything has to be really redesigned. And that took us, obviously, a lot of work. And I love that part of the business, too, sort of the infrastructure.
0: Yeah, and we'll we'll get into that in a little bit. But yeah, it's interesting, you know, you definitely resonate with this mission as a woman who wants to buy jewelry. So it's something you really understand. And, you know, I know a lot of people listening and I hear this a lot, they always think, you know, there's so many jewelry companies out there. It's such a saturated market. Were people questioning your move into the industry or how did you really battle that within yourself? Because on the face of it, people think it's expensive to get into jewelry, it's already saturated. So what gave you the confidence to kind of jump? and create this new idea?
1: Yeah, it's a great question. And I've done a ton of research. Being a founder who wanted to actually go and raise capital and believed really in the vision of majori, I wanted to accelerate the growth and I wanted to go and raise funding for it, which is typically allocated to more of the technology business. So I really had to be buttoned up in terms of the positioning of the industry. And you're right in the sense that when you look at it, at a first glance, it looks like a saturated industry. But it's actually when you study it, it's a it's a large market, so call it $200 billion industry. Obviously, that's not our addressable market and the dynamic of it is very small. About 20 percent of that is actually branded jewelry and the remainder is completely fragmented, either local brands, smaller designers and mom and pop shops. And that was a big indicator when you compare that with watches, for example, watches is 60 percent of it is branded. So you can immediately understand that there hasn't been a brand for the next generation that is capturing the hearts and minds of people. And so there's an opportunity to create a brand that people will gravitate to. And sort of that is, I guess, from a numbers standpoint or from a scientific standpoint, let's say, why we exist. But obviously, more importantly, the mission of the company is why we exist.
0: Exactly. And I love that. And I think that's important for people listening in to just understand, you know, because there's so many companies out there in jewelry, you know, not to get intimidated that there's no room, right? You dug deeper a little bit, you saw the addressable market and the opportunity there. And I think there's so much potential, which, you know, that same process can be applied to so many different industries. So I love your experience there. And another thing I want to talk about, and we've actually coincidentally have had a lot of women on the podcast who have joined accelerators early in the business. And I know that was pivotal for you. So I'd love to hear you know, what was the inspiration for you to join 500 Startups, which is a top accelerator. And how was your experience there?
1: Yeah, I actually went into 2 accelerators to start the business. I didn't know that. That's good to know. Yeah. When we first started, we went into Founderfield, which is a, a Canadian accelerator in Montreal. And it's, it's focused on very, very early stage companies. And the reason I got into accelerators, I truly believed from day one that we can build something really exciting, really big. I have huge conviction on what we're building. And I wanted to do it in a very differentiated way. I wanted to learn about technology companies. I wanted to learn about the new way of doing things. And I wanted to to also raise capital to fund the growth of the business. So these are things that I chose from the beginning to do for the business. And as a newcomer, I wanted to build a network as well. And, And it felt like that is the right place to be to A, accelerate my learning about starting a business and B, about building a network. So we came out of Founder Fuel very early stage in 2015, and then we started to build revenue. And 500 Startups is a different type of accelerator where you go after you've proven that you can actually generate revenue and sort of it's an acceleration. The reason why I also was super excited to go to 500 Startups is because it's in San Francisco, which is everyone knows what San Francisco means when it comes to startups. And I... I wanted to get exposure over there. I wanted to learn more. I wanted to surround myself with like-minded people. And so that was one of the reasons and also expand my network as I was, again, planning to grow the business. So these are the reasons why I chose an accelerator. I would not change it, to be honest. They were very, very important in the journey.
0: was literally out of commission for at least a week every single month, and that adds up to three months in every year. Other than feeling frustrated that my really bad periods were keeping me from pursuing my actual goals, I knew that something wasn't right. Women are not inherently designed to suffer every single month. That's when I learned about hormonal imbalances. Seed cycling is the simple process of using food as medicine to naturally support your hormones. It uses four different types of seeds, yes, actual seeds throughout your menstrual cycle to support the balance of hormones like progesterone and estrogen and give your body critical nutrients it needs to achieve your best health. If you or anyone you know has been struggling with hormonal imbalances or bad periods, go to beawellness.com free. Once again, it's beawellness.com free to download our free guide to our top tips in tackling hormonal imbalances and to learn more about our Seed Cycling Bundle. We included this link in the show notes along with a promo code for $10 off for all of our Behind Her Empire listeners. I know you're going to love Seed Cycling just as much as I do. Thanks for listening listening. And now let's get back to the show. One thing that you've mentioned, which I love, and I love to dig a little bit deeper in this, especially in your experience in 500 startups, you said what you really learned was having a huge appetite for failure, especially in the tech world, right? Silicon Valley, it's encouraged to fail. So I love to hear you talk more about your failure because it's so hard, you know, if the company isn't doing well or something fails to not really internalize that and take it personally. So I'd love to hear how you work through it and what you learned in your experience there.
1: To be honest, going to the United States and particularly to San Francisco, that whole concept of failure is a data point that if you do something about it, you can course correct. And I think I had, you know, being someone who is very goal oriented, who's always worked super hard to get my goals, that was not something that I was comfortable with, and probably maybe culturally wasn't very comfortable with failure. And so that adds obviously a lot of pressure because naturally when you're building a net new business, 90% of what you do is not going to work the first time. There's a lot of mental stress and pressure in the beginning with all of these experiments that are not working. And so going there and actually being encouraged and being surrounded with super smart people who are doing the same things and, and having challenges was really important. And it just changes your mindset. It is naturally, even though we're operating in a very old industry, we're doing things new. Everything is changing. Even Instagram is changing every day. Even algorithms of advertising are changing every day. So it's absolutely normal for us to have an experimentation mindset. And it's normal for us to actually expect that a majority of them are not going to work in the the early stages of the business in order to really find what works and what doesn't. And that really helped me personally as a business leader, but also helped relieve some of the stresses or the pressure that I was putting on myself of my expectations to have to get everything right the first time.
0: Exactly. And that resonates a lot with me. I'm early stages in my business. And, you know, sometimes you can overanalyze certain aspects of your business. And sometimes I just sit there and I'm like, you know what, Yasmin, just try it. It doesn't hurt. Like there's no right answer. No one's going to have an answer for you until you try different things. And some of them will fail. Some some of them will work. And I think it's just really important to learn and pivot. So that mentality that you learned there and being in the US and being in the tech epicenter, I'm sure is so helpful. So I'm glad you kind of walked through that. And another question that comes to mind, you know, you mentioned before 500 startups, you did have a little bit of traction. So how did you really create awareness in the early days? Because there's so many women entrepreneurs listening who might be in that stage and trying to figure out how to get that traction, which can sometimes be so difficult at that time.
1: So there's timing. So at our time, there's a lot of things that were not new. And I'll tell you more about that. But Fundamentally, what we considered that we wanted to build a center of excellence in, we brought in house. Uh, so, for example, since the beginning, our chief creative officer is a founding team member, Justine. And so we work super closely together. She has experience in creating brands with, you know, she's worked with Lacoste, Chanel, Gallery Lafayette. I knew that creating a brand is a super important portion of the business. And so she was on board from the beginning. And so creating that consistency, the creating the essence of the brand, what does it mean? How do we we actually genuinely create a brand in an organic way was really challenging and exciting and it's it's very important. And so she was here from the beginning and people can see through these things. So we decided that's a center of excellence, that's something very important. We want to create an amazing brand experience. Another example would be, for example, our partnerships with, whether it be with with magazines or influencers, all of it was in-house because we wanted to build long-term relationships. We didn't want to do transactional, so we brought that in-house. And that helps us to, A, understand what works and what doesn't work, going back to the experimentation because you're in early stage, but also think for the long term. And I think some of the things that helped us gain traction is really pay close attention to what the customer is saying try to understand what they're looking for and evolve. And we didn't think of paid acquisition, for example, in the beginning, because we were very adamant about creating the right consistency before we even invest into paid acquisition. So anything that has to do with social or the values of the brand, and how do we actually translate that through our social media, our email, our partnerships was what we focused on. But again, the timing was very different. That was the channel that was available to us. And I I bet right now, the challenges are a little bit different.
0: Yeah, yeah. No, absolutely. But I do like the fact that you did do everything in-house. You didn't necessarily automatically go to paid advertising. You know, you're just figuring out your brand, your messaging, which you need a few customers to go through the motions to really understand who you are as a business and the whole process before you start putting money behind that for advertising. And a question that I get a lot about in terms of recruiting, especially so early in the business, you know, your chief creative officer was key and fundamental in that early stage. So how did you really get someone like with that experience excited when you obviously didn't have the pockets and the cash available to give them the same salary that they had in the past? But how did you really structure that type of relationship?
1: Yeah, honestly, it's a great question. And she's a partner at the business. So she's a founding team member. So I was lucky partially. And partially, I was also super persistent to try to find the profile that I like. And I found Justine and I pinged her as soon as she put her, her portfolio up and we met up in a coffee shop. And to be honest, we were lucky. We just hit it off immediately. And we both wanted to work on this. You were absolutely right in the sense that we were very early, but she came in as a, as a partner to the business. And obviously, as we started to grow and be able to hire more and more people, your, your mindset becomes to hire, I think, in the early stages people who are resourceful, who can plug in multiple places of the business. And now recently, as you continue to grow and you hit certain scale, you start to bring specialists. So really your mindset has to continue to evolve as to the type of talent that you bring to the business at different points in time.
0: Absolutely, I'm sure. And I want to shift gears a little bit and kind of stay in those earlier stages because you've been very open about how important it is as an entrepreneur to deal with your mental health. And you talk about how, you know, very early in the business, you dealt with burnout, you woke up at some days not being excited about the business and just didn't feel like yourself. So I'd love to hear about what was that stage of your life like and how did you really manage your mental health at that time?
1: Yeah, it was, it was essentially the phase before I went to 500 startups where we were very much constrained in terms of resources and very much in very, very early stages. And it was isolating because the team was distributed. We didn't have an office at the time. And so that was a very tough period of time. And I think what, what helped me by going to 500 startups, and not that's not the only way, just the key point is, surrounding yourself with people who are doing the same thing, because sometimes in your mind, you're like the only person who's facing these challenges. And then you come out of the bubble and you actually talk to other people who are building businesses. Just the idea that they're smart and successful and they're facing the same, uh, the same sorts of challenges immediately puts you in a sense of community. And so that was super helpful for me personally. And I also did start therapy at that point in my life. I've always believed in therapy. Um, I've always believed like you take care of your body, you should take care of your mind. And I've I've always loved that. Naturally, I'm a person who's go, go, go. And so therapy to me is like, at least I can sit down and reflect (laughs) and resolve anything. So that's when I started to actually commit to therapy, but also commit to surrounding myself with like-minded people.
0: I think that is so key because entrepreneurship, especially in the early stages, and I'm sure the problems continue as you grow bigger, there's different issues to deal with. But it's so important to have the community that understands what you're going through because I know you mentioned in another interview, you know, sometimes you didn't have friends to talk to because they didn't know what it was like to build a business from scratch. So I think that community and really making sure you deal with your self care. Sometimes I think it's so easy to put your own self behind you. And I think if anything, to show up as a leader, you need to make sure you're good. And I know your mom talked. A lot about that right like i know she's mentioned a few things
1: yeah she she basically taught me that it's not selfish to take care of yourself and i i think that's very very important and it's it's not selfish to go and work if you're a mother it's not selfish to do these things if you're happy then you can actually bring more happiness towards others and taking care of yourself is, you know, brings more abundance to those around you. And I think it was very important to hear it from her. And it's one thing that I feel a lot of women struggle with. And it's something that we talk about a lot in Nigeria: is taking care of yourself, not from a selfish standpoint, but it's very important for you to be happy, for you to be supportive, to be positive, to do the impact that you want to do.
0: Exactly, and you know, we'll talk about this a little bit. But you mentioned, you know, you're a mother of twins right now. You're obviously the leader, CEO of a high growth business. How are you carving out that time for yourself between everything that's going on? Has it been a struggle for you? Are you learning how to manage it? I would love to hear more about that.
1: Oh, it, it of course was a struggle, especially in the beginning. <laughs> in the beginning, I also, you know, didn't get a long maternity. I had to be in the business. To be honest with you, it's a learning curve. I mean, kids grow, uh, have different needs at different points in time. and When they're young, things change very quickly. But I think one thing that helped me is that my daughters have helped me put balance things, if that makes sense. Like they, I want to be there. There's boundaries. I want to be there within specific periods of time where I'm offline. I focus on them and they help me become more efficient and more effective. And I think that's the learning that you get comfortable with if you decide to have children and also run a business or even be an employee. You just become more effective, more efficient for some reason. And I think it's just those healthy constraints that you can put around your day that really helps you get there. So it is definitely a struggle, but I think not in a negative context, but more of it's a learning curve, continuous learning curve. I'm working very hard and always wiring my brain to see the positive in everything. And to be honest with you, just being able to balance things with them And being able to really dedicate weekends for them has been really a tremendous step for me. And I I absolutely love it.
0: I love hearing this because before I started this podcast, you know, I've, I want kids one day when the time is right. And I've also wanted to start businesses and always work. It's just something that brings me a lot of happiness. And hearing stories like yours and a lot of the women on the podcast, they've said they've credited a lot of their kids to being very focused, like you've said, right? It's like sometimes you wonder, I used to work 14 hour days. And now because you're so focused on what needs to get done and the most important, which I think is a superpower, if you can do that as an entrepreneur, they seem to succeed. And some women even start. Different businesses and come up with new ideas. So it's definitely very encouraging to see your experience and how you're able to manage it. It's not easy, but it keeps you very focused on what really matters, which I think is so important in entrepreneurship, whether you have kids or not. I try to train myself that all the time because you can work all the time on millions of different things, but it's like what matters, right?
1: Exactly. And guilt will drive you to work all hours of the day. And I think once you once you have a constraint, you realize, oh. I probably was spending a ton of time on things that barely moved the needle, And it's just a realization. And so I think even whether people decide to have kids or not, just having these healthy constraints to do a hobby or to shut up at a specific time, re-energize and come back, I think it's actually a very helpful thing for the business.
0: Yeah, I completely agree. And you know, one question I have for you. So going back a little bit to your fundraising journey, you ended up... Raising a bit more, you've raised over 30 million in venture capital. And I know when you were pregnant, I think it was like a day before you went into labor, you signed your series B document. So I'd love to hear, you know, how was that experience? Was it emotionally difficult for you just being so late in your pregnancy and raising funding? Because I know that's not an easy process at all.
1: Yeah. To be honest, I've raised over 40 million. And I think the first million, I'll have to tell you about that was the most difficult and also the, the best achievement. Naturally, so the first million we didn't have a lot of network, and like I said, we were raising for jewelry when everyone was raising for high tech businesses. So I really had to work super hard to hit that milestone, and it took us six months. Six months in an early stage business is a very long time, and so that was a very difficult milestone. I, I worked super hard for it, but at the same time, it actually helped us create that healthy constraint again, where we don't have access to a ton of capital, so we really were super focused. On what matters to our customers and so i think that was the foundation of really getting the business in shape for series a which was easier and by the time i went to raise for series b and i was pregnant i wouldn't say it was easier it was a completely more complicated process but i i still felt that it was easier than my seed funding just because we set those foundations But some of the secrets I think that are super important to mention is I never just go and talk to investors at the point that we want to fundraise. I I always have conversations with potential investors ahead of time to have a relationship because it's it's at the end of the day, it's a long-term relationship and you want to work with the right partners. Raising when I was pregnant was, looking back right now, I love it because I'm going to share this with the girls. I'm going to tell them all about it. And they probably heard me pitch majority in oh, times <laughs> oh sweet but it was also a great way to get the partners who look at me as a human being as a full human being who wants to be a mother and also wants to be a business leader and who want to support me as a person and not just as an entrepreneur
0: yeah it's true and i know in another interview you mentioned like in the earlier stages when you were raising i think the first million or earlier on someone asked you when are you and your husband planning on having kids? It's like, what does that have to do with the conversation, right? So it's interesting being pregnant and going through the process, you really see what investors are the right fit for you because it's a two-way street at the end of the day and it's a long-term relationship. And you know, you mentioned the most difficult time in your life and something you're so proud of is those six months when it was very tough. To raise money so how did you deal with all the rejections i have so many friends going through that process right now and seeing it firsthand i haven't gone through it but just seeing them it's mentally tough so how are you managing your optimism and resilience during that time
1: i had a lot of conviction and that is what drove me i had a lot of conviction in what we needed to do i ran it like a process i put a list of investors that i'd like to talk to and one after the other, and I was told, I remember, I don't know if I'm gonna phrase it as eloquently as it was told to me, but basically every no gets you closer to a yes. So just manage your expectations. It's not an easy process. You're gonna get no's. The more no's, the closer you are to a yes. And obviously if you get no's across the board, then there's something to reevaluate. But with that mindset, I'm not going to pretend that it was the easiest thing ever, but I do have a lot of supportive. You know, my husband is super supportive, my team you is know, super supportive, and the team was really amazing. It does take a community to support an entrepreneur, I think. <laughs> for sure. And you mentioned also,
0: you know, it really allowed you to focus on the fundamentals and the foundation of the business, which really set you up to raise money in a somewhat easier manner going forward. Can you talk a little bit more about that for people listening who are working on their businesses and want to make sure that infrastructure foundation is at par with kind of how you thought about your business then?
1: Yeah, I'll give you a small example. I think at the time we were challenged to spend capital on, for example, PR and I think while obviously PR is super important, but it's important at a specific point in the business. And I think a lot of businesses when they're early stage, they do talk so much about how much they got coverage. And if you think about it, it's great that you get coverage, but if you don't have the fundamentals, are your customers happy? Is your product good? Is your customer service good? Is your manufacturing network strong and can scale? Like if these don't tick the box, no matter how much you get people talking about it who haven't actually bought the product, It doesn't really matter. And so we chose, for example, this is a small example to really focus on uh, surprisingly light our customers talk to our customers to understand what works and what doesn't work, really be close to our manufacturers and suppliers instead of spending capital, for example, on PR and spending more on partnerships. And so this is where you have to ask yourself what adds value at the end of the day to customers because your customer is... You want customers to tell each other and not necessarily a third party who had not bought your product to tell others about it. At the time you have product market fit and you really are confident with everything PR comes into play. So this is sort of a simple example of how we looked at it.
0: Uh, it's not a simple example, but so important. I hope everybody just rewinds that and listens to everything Nora says, because I think that's so, so important. And how long would you say it took you to really get that product market fit and turn on that life switch for PR? And obviously, so much comes after that as well. But how long did that take you guys?
1: To be honest, I don't really remember. I think I always think of it as an iterative process. You're always improving something. We first started in 2015, I feel like we started to get more and more traction over time and it really is increments of increases over time and I get asked also what had contributed to that and quite frankly, I will tell you we've had objectives, for example, across all areas of the business and we were asking each area of the business to progress. And I feel like that approach, there isn't one answer. It's just you have to have progression across different areas of the business, primarily the ones that are really important to your customers. And so then you have a compounded effect. I struggled to answer the when because it felt like a a gradual process to me, but we probably started to pick up pace in 2016 after we raised
0: seed funding. Sure, sure. No, that definitely makes sense. And I'm curious, you know, as you're gaining this traction and sustainably growing the business, what does your family think? Are they upset you never joined the family business or how has their opinion of you starting the business to now obviously being a very successful entrepreneur? I'd love to hear what they think.
1: Yeah, you know, my father, so the way that he ran his business is jewelry is very important where I grew up. And jewelry, as we all know, can be a complex product, has a lot of specs and quality. And he had a lot of transparency with his customers. He nurtured relationships one-on-one with customers. So he was customer facing and also took charge of making sure that retention of customers and that they know exactly what they're buying. He went and curated his own products. He's done a ton as a one person. And so when I said that we're going to sell jewelry and diamonds online to him, is like, how how is how are you going to do all of these things with customers online? And so it was sort of, Something that we talk about and we laugh about, but they're obviously very excited about what we've done and really love the direction that we've taken. But it's also nice to reflect back and see some of the fundamentals that I believe in, in terms of transparency, in terms of the merchandise or even the relationship with the customer come from the simple one-on-one interactions that my father had.
0: Absolutely. I'm sure there's so much that you learned from him, and you're just taking it and doing it with your own spin. But it's great to kind of see how they're so, so supportive of you and you know, how much of an impact they've made in your life. What are you most proud of that a lot of people may not know about you or you may not have talked about to this date?
1: Building a business is an exciting, humbling experience. There is a lot that I reflect on and I'm grateful for, and a lot that I'm proud of. I think one thing that comes to mind recently is last year we decided to uh, create our empowerment fund it's essentially to help provide scholarships to women and non-binary people to pursue education or learn new skills the fundamental belief behind it is if you learn new skills then you have more optionality to design your life and it's something that i feel very passionately about under the whole premise of buy yourself the damn diamond or take care of yourself and so most recently I watched a video of recipients of one of the cohorts that we have supported and it felt super impactful to me. And I shared it with the entire business. And just the the thought that while we're still in early stages of our fund, it felt really incredible to just see the impact that we can bring. And it really gave me a large boost of energy, to be honest with you, to just see that impact. And I think that's that's the most recent. I actually just shared it with the team today, so it comes to mind, and I, I really love And I'm proud of that, of the empowerment
0: I love that. And we'll definitely put more information on your empowerment fund in our show notes. But what a beautiful place to be in to have the business be at a point where you can create this fund and make an impact. And I'm sure with time, it will only continue to be bigger at a bigger scale. So that is so beautiful. And a closing question that we like to ask all of our guests as well is, wealth means so much more than money. And everybody has their own definition of wealth. At this stage in your life and where you're at, what does wealth mean to you?
1: Number one is health. It's really important. It's something that that is very precious, and we we often take it for granted. And the second thing, I would say, peace of mind. These are two things that are so, so, so important and fundamentals for happiness in my in my particular.
0: Ugh, peace of mind, that is so key. We went through my husband and I went through some personal stuff in our life. And we were just talking about whatever it takes for us to set up our life for peace of mind is so important. So I think that definitely resonates with me as well. And I realized there's one thing I didn't touch upon this interview is, you know, your co-founder, one of your biggest partners in the business is your husband, which is amazing. So I'd love to hear, and I'm sure you get this question quite a bit, but how is that relationship working alongside him, as well as him being the father of your kids and your husband? And how do you guys kind of create that balance and boundaries in your everyday life if you're able to do that?
1: Yeah, it's honestly, it's a learning process. We had to, at some point, force like put grand rules of when that we get to say, I don't want to talk about work now. <laughs> it's been a tremendous journey to work together it's been exciting it's been challenging but i think i wouldn't change it because to be honest the hours of work and uh, the things that we had to do for the business just not both of us being on the same side was very important we take care of different parts of the business and i think having complementary skills that's super important when you when you work with someone very close it just helps to have a divide and conquer type of approach But after having kids, we naturally, like I said, it just sets boundaries naturally because you have to focus on your family and that naturally brings the work talk and the work thinking back to work. And it actually was helpful in in our relationship.
0: That's great to hear. I mean, again, I don't have kids now, but I feel like in this house, I'm always talking about my business or like new things. I just, it's so part of your life that I love it. Right. So if it's 10 PM, I'll get his thoughts on something or I'll talk about something. So it's nice to hear how kids can bring that the boundaries and just some balance in your life because I can, yeah, it's definitely interesting if people were to see what goes on here.
1: talking about the business at any point, like anything I can talk, I just find it super energizing, but now I'm a a lot more (laughs) self-aware.
0: Yeah, I love that. I love that. Well, Nora, thank you so much for joining us. This was so much fun. I so appreciate it.
1: Thank you so much. It was great to talk to you.